Welcome to the Drawdown Agenda podcast, a collaboration between the Sustainability Agenda and Drawdown, a truly inspiring project that ranks and evaluates the 100 most powerful carbon reduction solutions that can help us achieve drawdown when greenhouse gas concentrations peak and begin to fall. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every fortnight, I speak to leading drawdown researchers who have worked to identify and measure different drawdown solutions. We explore the research, discuss how these solutions work in practice, and learn how we can take collective action to achieve drawdown and help reverse global warming. In the push to make everything recyclable and compostable, as a society, we risk being penny-wise and pound-foolish. We need to be careful that we keep in mind that our overarching objective is not to keep stuff out of landfills. It's not circularity for the sake of circularity. It should be circularity for the sake of conserving resources and reducing pollution. And not all circular activities are sustainable. Not all circular activities are low impact. There are, and this is very counterintuitive, but there are instances where the better option is to use a material that regrettably cannot be recovered at end of life. It cannot be recycled, but by virtue of what it's made out of and how it's made, it has a lower carbon footprint. I'm very pleased to welcome David Alloway to the podcast. David is a drawdown advisor and senior policy analyst in the Department of Environmental Quality's Materials Management Program in the U.S. state of Oregon, where he leads projects related to materials and waste management. David has led efforts to develop and update one of the first consumption-based greenhouse gas emissions inventories in the U.S., and his current work is focused on the next-generation materials, policies, and programs as Oregon transitions from end-of-life waste management to a full life-cycle sustainable materials management. So thank you very much, David, for joining us today on the Drawdown Agenda podcast. Very glad to be here. Thank you. Excellent. So your domain, the area that you've been focusing on in the world of Drawdown is materials. So it'd be good to talk a little bit about that. Sounds a little bit abstract. What does that actually entail? And maybe also if you could just give us a little bit of a background on the, what you do and how you're, you know, your expertise and interest in this whole area. Oh, sure. Thanks. So let's start with a, a common understanding of what materials mean. Um, materials refers to all of the matter, um, non-energy, non-food that flows through our economy. And it includes, just as examples, um, consumer durables like furniture and clothing, uh, packaging, other disposable and short-lived items, uh, materials that are also used in infrastructure and buildings, such as concrete, wood, and steel, and also the chemicals that serve as the building blocks for industry, as well as are used in products such as refrigerants. Um, I've been working in the materials space for about 30 years. Um, currently work at the state of Oregon on a variety of, of policies and programs that are intended to reduce the environmental impacts of materials. Great. Great. So just at a very big picture level, David, how important are they in terms of the world of drawdown? Can you just maybe give an overview? Sure. Um, so there are a number of materials-related solutions in drawdown. Uh, interestingly, the, the number one ranked solution uh, falls into the materials chapter. Generally speaking, um, materials have 
significant untapped potential to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and it's potential that isn't really as well understood as, say, uh, energy, transportation, electricity, largely because it hasn't received the focus or attention in the uh, research or um, policymaking space that, for example, transportation fuels have. But to put materials in context, um, if you look at the greenhouse gas emissions that arise within the borders of the United States, 42% of those emissions um, result from the production, transportation, or disposal of materials. That includes food in this case. Um, but um, all those emissions over what we call the life cycle of materials are very significant, and they're larger than the emissions associated with heating, lighting, and cooling buildings. They're larger than the emissions associated with transporting people in this country. So materials have huge impacts and um, some significant potential for reduction. Right, right. Is this the consumer lifestyle that we're talking about in some way or other? <laughs> well, well, in some ways it is. The number I just shared with you is about the emissions that physically originate within the United States. Those are our production-based emissions. And a lot of those emissions are associated with producing um, primary materials such as steel, uh, aluminum, paper, etc., some of those materials, in the case of this country, we export. Um, I, I guess it's not about U.S. consumers. It's about consumers elsewhere. But on the flip side, there's a significant amount of global emission, emissions in China and Vietnam and Mexico and elsewhere that are not on our country's ledger. Um, those are emissions associated with producing the materials that Americans ultimately use. Uh, the U.K. has a similar balance sheet. And so when you look at emissions through the lens of consumption, materials take on even greater significance than the numbers I shared previously. Yes, yes, with offshoring and all the kind of uh, activities that went on, have been going on with globalization, presumably more and more of the goods that are, cons are consumed by Americans and indeed around the world are outside of the national border. That's right. And we've seen that, for example, in Oregon, where we've evaluated um, both the emissions inside our state's borders, um, uh, going back to 1990, as well as the global emissions associated with our consumption. Um, the emissions inside our state borders kind of went up in the 1990s and then started going down. The global emissions associated with our consumption started out a bit higher and have just been on a steady upward trajectory ever since. So the gap between them now is quite large. And it does seem to slip under the radar a bit. I think when people are quoting statistics and so forth, it doesn't seem to be the figure that people talk about and therefore maybe not gets the attention. And as you, you mentioned um, before, that just realizing how important this is. Well, th that's true, and there's a couple of good reasons for it. I mean, first of all, most communities do not track their consumption-based emissions. Many aren't even aware of them. Um, you know, second, the consumption-based emissions and, and these emissions embedded within imports um, have not been the historic focus of climate policy and programs. Um, they are widely believed to be outside of the control or the regulatory control of uh, national or state governments, although there, there actually are a number of actions that uh, states and nations can take to reduce these imported emissions. Businesses can do a lot because it is about their supply chains, which they directly control, and consumers can take action as well. So when we, when we think about these imported emissions, um, there is 
a, a, a richer opportunity to reduce them than is commonly believed. And uh, coming back to materials, however, there's a. I just want to want to make sure we're talking about the same thing here. The emissions associated with materials and drawdown are a mix of production and consumption-based emissions. They are the emissions associated with producing and using materials. Um, and some of those materials, some of those emissions do occur within our borders and are directly subject to, for example, potential regulatory controls. Yes, yes, absolutely. Now, clearly, um, the manufacturing process itself takes energy and transportation as well. And presumably that's a growing part of the, the picture, at least uh, physically, the, the amount of goods that are being transported. Does that also show up in carbon emissions or are we getting better at shipping things around the world? I mean, people talk about this uh, an issue of globalization that you, 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 you the dizzying range of places that a particular um, uh, piece of uh, car, for example, might go on its journey before ending up in the car um, must be an issue. But uh, can you talk a little bit about the distinction there or, or just the relative proportions, if that makes sense? Absolutely. Um, so I think people intuit that most of the emissions associated with materials are due to their transportation because we we think about these things that we're buying or that are coming into our into our communities and we are aware increasingly that these products are made in distant places and they're transported long distances and that's increasing and so we intuit that that must be the big the big um, contributor to emissions here. It actually turns out that for most materials, freight transportation from the producer to the consumer is a relatively moderate or even small um, contributor to emissions. Um, for example, looking at the food that is consumed by U.S. households, um, the emissions associated with transporting the food from the final producer to the retailer is 4% of the carbon footprint. The emissions associated with growing and producing the food is about 83% of the carbon footprint. So um, food is kind of a special case because it is so emissions intensive in its production. But even when we look at the, the national emissions accounts for the United States as a whole, um, I gave you that number of 42%, which was the the in-nation emissions associated with producing, transporting, and disposing of of materials, including food. Um, transportation is about 7 or 8%. Um, the majority of the emissions are in raw material extraction. Uh, so, for example, mining and the, uh, the uh, extraction of petroleum, but primarily in primary material manufacturing, emissions from refineries, smelters, um, paper mills, uh, and the like. So most of the emissions are in production, not in transportation. And when we're talking about importing um, materials from other countries, it is really the emissions intensity of production that typically dominates the equation. So, for example, if you are a country with a very dirty um, electricity mix. Um, your locally produced, um, I'm, I'll use um, steel as an example, um, or you, let me just use any, any sort of primary material. 
um, your locally produced material may have a higher carbon footprint just because you have a dirtier uh, energy mix. It might be electricity or it might be primary fuels. And we've seen this, for example, when comparing steel made in the United States versus steel made in China. Um, the Chinese steel may have a higher carbon footprint, not because it has to be transported here, but because of how it's made. And this is particularly acute with agricultural products, where there are some products, some types of foods that grow really well, they grow really productively with minimal or lower degrees of um, chemical inputs in places such as Brazil. Um, and trying to grow those products in the UK um, where, they're, where they don't grow very well and forcing upon them a lot of added chemical nutrients and whatnot, even and, and generating lower yields, it will result in a product, it could result in a product that has a higher carbon footprint, even though it's local. So local is always popular, especially among politicians. From a carbon footprint, local is not always better. And it really you really have to look at it on a product-by-product product basis because, regrettably, they're all different. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. Um, I suppose, taking the food example, some people would also argue, well, you know, uh, to eat seasonal foods so that you wouldn't get, you wouldn't be trying to grow the foods necessarily that are, are grown in Brazil, but you just stick to things that are local and seasonal. But I get your point entirely there. And I guess in that sense, you clearly can say, well, you know, just don't eat it. And I suppose that's part of... Uh, the types of solutions we're talking about here. One is just to stop consuming to some extent or to slow down consumption. Um, what are the other elements that are central here in terms of uh, reducing carbon emissions? Sure. So within Drawdown, um, the, the suite of solutions related to materials typically fall into sort of three broad categories. And, and, and let me introduce each of the three. Um, the first category of solutions is really about cleaner production um, it's not about it's not about changing what we consume so much as just making things in less emittive ways. Uh, an example of that in drawdown is low carbon concrete. You can make concrete in ways that have high emissions. You could make concrete in ways that have much lower emissions. So just producing things differently. A second category of solutions, and one that I think gets perhaps the most attention, is better management of materials at end of life. Uh, for example, recycling or composting, capturing refrigerants and keeping um, refrigerants from escaping to the atmosphere as an example as well. Um, and then the third category, which we just started talking about for a minute there, is to simply use less stuff. Um, change in consumption. Uh, it's, also, it's also called waste prevention. It's the reduce part of reduce, reuse, recycle. Some people call it dematerialization. But, but generally speaking, there are these sort of three broad approaches. Make things cleaner, um, manage them better at the end of life, and use less of them in the first place. Right. Very interesting. And I'm going to ask you another one of those questions, David. Um, relatively speaking, how would you apportion importance between those? <laughs> I, I guess that's what we, where we are today and, and looking forward. Certainly, we hear a lot of talk and there is does seem to be tremendous momentum, uh, certainly in certain sectors, with uh, the circular economy, for sure. Um, I'm just wondering, is there any easy way of highlighting the relative importance of each of those three? Um, well, Drawdown didn't didn't ask that question explicitly, but based on my 
couple decades working in this space and doing a fair amount of analyses um, on it, I would posit that the greatest potential um, is in um, first reducing and shifting consumption and second, cleaner production. And then when we talk about end of life, end of life, for example, recycling and composting um, has has meaningful potential, but it's also fairly moderate. It's fairly limited. It's important to do. It's worthwhile, but it's not by itself sufficient. And, you know, regrettably, it's been a little overhyped. Um, there are some groups claiming that total recycling or zero waste, you know, will solve our climate problem. It, they won't. Um, and we, we just need to be honest about the the benefits of recycling, but also the limitations of it. That's very interesting. It's very interesting. I suppose there's also a slight overlap here in the sense that when you start to get into the circular thinking like that, it, one part of it, as you say, is uh, end of life. But I, I suppose people are increasingly looking at designing products in a way that they, there is no waste. Is that slightly different from what you're talking about here is, you know, making materials in other ways that reduce emissions? Well, well, <laughs> that's a great question. Um, let me try to unwrap it for you because it, it has a couple of different layers. Um, many people and many policymakers view recycling as a way of managing wastes, as a way of managing discards. And we treat our recycling programs as if they were an extension of the garbage system. Um, certainly in the United States, that's the case. Uh, recycling is, is viewed as a activity of sorting and collection. It is the, um, the role of the local governments, typically the waste, the garbage programs, to, to offer these recycling services um, either directly or through a, through a franchised or a contracted waste collection company. And if you go to recycling conferences, it's all about collection and, and different modes of collection and getting people to participate and so on and so forth. It's, it's really viewed as an extension of the waste system and a, as a better way of managing wastes. Um, but recycling is not collection, and collection is not recycling. Recycling doesn't really happen until those collected materials get used by industry to make a product. And when you evaluate recycling for its greenhouse gas benefit, the large majority of the benefit, in some cases almost all of the benefit, is due to the displacement of virgin resources. It's not about keeping stuff out of the landfill. It's not about keeping it out of the incinerator. It's about providing industry with feedstocks that industry can use to make new products. And, and many, most of the time, um, making those products from recycled wastes results in lower greenhouse gas emissions on the industrial side of the accounting ledger. And so the real greenhouse gas benefit of recycling is it, it's, it's a form of cleaner production. Um, so in a, I want to hook these two ideas together. I said there are these sort of three basic pathways, right? There's end-of-life management, there's sustainable consumption, and then there's cleaner production. Well, that's really where recycling should live. Regrettably, it's not how we approach recycling. Um, if we did, if we treated our recycling programs as a means of providing industry with feedstocks that could be used to support cleaner production, we would not have the high degrees of contamination 
in our mixed recyclables that are currently undermining and threatening the economic viability of recycling itself. And that's sort of a, we can go down that rabbit hole if you want to, but I, I just wanted to suggest that recycling fundamentally should not be viewed as a waste management alternative. It should be viewed as a means of providing industry with raw materials because that's where its environmental value is. So just to unwrap this a little bit further, you also asked about design and designing products differently. And there's a lot of momentum right now, um, for example, in the circular economy movement to require all materials to be recyclable or compostable. So let's unpackage this. Recycling has greenhouse gas benefits. Composting can have greenhouse gas benefits depending on what you're composting and how it's done. So it seems very logical, it seems very reasonable to assume that since some recycling and composting reduces greenhouse gas emissions, then more recycling and composting would reduce even more greenhouse gas emissions. Yes, yes. And that's generally, that's generally true, right? Right. So, so then you, people take this logic one step further and they say, okay, so why can't we recycle and compost everything? Well, the reason we can't recycle and compost everything is because some stuff is, 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 it's hard to recycle. It's hard to compost. So we should design it differently to make it easier to recycle or compost. And that sounds very reasonable as well. Um, so here's the catch. Some materials, and let's use packaging as an example, some packaging formats are much easier to recycle than, than others. Um, steel cans uh, glass bottles, plastic tubs are relatively easy to recycle. Flexible laminate pouches are not. They're really difficult to recycle. Um, so they are difficult to recycle because of how they're made and what they're made of. They are different materials. But what is commonly forgotten is that just as they are different materials, different materials also have different carbon footprints. And it turns out that these difficult-to-recycle flexible laminate pouches um, have really, really low greenhouse gas emissions in their production. And their emissions are so low that even if they go to a landfill, their emissions over their life cycle will be lower than a readily recyclable steel can or glass bottle or rigid plastic tub, even if that material is recycled at a high rate. So in the push to make everything recyclable and compostable, as a society, we risk being penny-wise and pound-foolish, or to use another proverb, to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We need to be careful that we keep in mind that our overarching objective is not to keep stuff out of landfills. It's not circularity for the sake of circularity. It should be circularity for the sake of conserving resources and reducing pollution, and not all circular activities are sustainable. Not all circular activities are low impact. There are, and this is very counterintuitive, but there are instances where the better option is to use a material that regrettably cannot be recovered at end of life. It cannot be recycled, but by virtue of what it's made out of and how it's made, it has a lower carbon footprint. 
Back to David in a moment. But first, if you haven't already, here's a quick reminder to listen to our previous episode on marine permaculture with Brian von Herzen of the Climate Foundation. The Climate Foundation is an international NGO working on bold, innovative solutions to ensure food security and reduce carbon dioxide by regenerating land and sea ecosystems. One of its flagship projects is marine permaculture, an innovative approach to developing seaweed forests in the open ocean, flourishing ecosystems that can take up to 20 times more CO2 from the atmosphere than land-based forests, at the same time as restoring ocean life, which supports local communities. You can hear more fascinating insights in the full interview and also find out more by visiting the Climate Foundation's website at climatefoundation.org. Now, just taking that idea that you mentioned before about this uh, uh, manufacturing uh, more efficiently, or should we say with, with, with a lower carbon output, um, you talked about concrete, for example. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that? Uh, give us a brief kind of overview of, of what's happening there. Uh, it's quite interesting, I think. Yeah, con- concrete is this amazing material that um, that is is often overlooked. So, um, so what is concrete, right? I mean, concrete is everywhere. Concrete, you know, holds our buildings together, and concrete is this amazing mixture of. It's really simple. It is sand, gravel, water, and cement. And cement is kind of the magic here. It's the glue that holds everything together and gives concrete its remarkable, amazing strength. So mixing all these materials together and pouring it in a mold is not all that emissions intensive, but what is, is the production of cement. It's the supply chain of concrete. The most common cement is called Portland cement. And you make Portland cement by taking limestone, this naturally occurring mineral, and you crush it, and then you heat it at very high temperatures. And this contributes to emissions in two ways. First of all, the heat is usually provided by natural gas, and burning natural gas, of course, emits carbon dioxide. But the limestone itself has elemental carbon embedded in it, and when you heat it, that carbon off-gasses as carbon dioxide. It's a chemical reaction. Worldwide, 5% of all of our anthropogenic carbon emissions worldwide stem from the production of cement. It's, It's really pretty massive. So the goal here is to reduce the use of cement. How do you do that? Because you have to use it. It's this glue, right? It turns out there are some there are some substitutes. There are some alternatives that can be used to replace a portion of the cement content. Two of the most common alternatives are actually byproducts of other industrial processes. Steel slag, uh, this this residue material that comes from the steel making process, and then ironically, the fly ash that is left over from the combustion of coal. Um, long term, that's not going to that's not going to be a sustainable um, uh, uh, mix in the supply chain when we get out of coal. But for the time being, we're burning a lot of coal. There's a lot of this fly ash left over, and you can use it in lieu of some of the cement. There are some other materials you can use: ground glass. There's some chemical mixtures. There's some naturally occurring clays. So the UN Environment Program estimates that worldwide, if we could re- if we could substitute 40% of cement um, with these other materials, it would reduce global emissions by an amount that's equivalent to the entire carbon dioxide emissions from a mid-sized country like Mexico or South Africa. Wow, that's quite a, quite a statistic. Yeah, it, it, it's quite big. And, um, and there's some really interesting work being done. Um, 
there's there's some there's some good solid industry leadership on this topic. There are some good folks in academia working on it. The World Business Council for Sustainable Development has a cement sustainability initiative that that we've um, borrowed from, and and we have a novel project going on here in Oregon, um, the state uh, where I work, that is a voluntary partnership with our state's concrete industry, where we're trying to create a functioning market both supply and demand for this low-carbon concrete. Very interesting, very interesting. Now, um, the the number one solution in Drawdown is uh, refrigerants. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that? And I know there's been tremendous momentum around that uh, over some time uh, due to other uh, environmental issues as well and the CFCs. But um, can you just talk a little bit about why this is such a dominant solution? Right. Uh, It's really kind of a funny story because no one on the drawdown team um, expected refrigerants to show up as the number one solution in this sort of global compendium of solutions. So a little backstory. Refrigerants, of course, are the chemicals that are used in refrigerators and air conditioners to keep buildings and food cold. And um, there were a bunch of them that were banned in 1987 by the Montreal Protocol because they deplete the ozone layer. Um, Some of those legacy refrigerants are still in circulation. And it turns out that the the refrigerants that deplete the ozone layer are also potent greenhouse gases. So after the Montreal Protocol, those refrigerants were largely phased out and they were replaced with a new class of chemicals uh, called hydrofluorocarbons. The hydrofluorocarbons are not as harmful to the ozone layer, but they are still very powerful greenhouse gases. Most of the emissions occur, I mean, the emissions occur in a couple different places. When you're recharging your refrigerant, there can be leaks. Um, Refrigerant itself can leak out of the... um, out of the appliance, out of the air conditioner, but most of the emissions come when the refri- when the appliance is disposed of, when it's no longer wanted. Um, the air conditioner or the refrigerator or the AC unit in your car, if you have one, um, gets junked, and if they're not treated properly and evacuated, the refrigerants um, escape to the atmosphere. And, and these are like super, super potent greenhouse gases. They have a global warming potential um, tens of thousands of times more potent, um, thousands or tens of thousands of times more potent than carbon dioxide. So um, we really need sort of two solutions. The first is we need to make sure that refrigerants are removed from appliances um, and when they're, when they're no longer wanted and that the refrigerants are destroyed. And then we also need industry everywhere to switch over to less harmful refrigerants uh, to get out of hydrofluorocarbons, and there are several good options. So um, you mentioned some some global momentum. Back in October of 2016, um, 170 countries came together in a meeting in Kigali, Rwanda, and they negotiated an amendment to the Montreal Protocol that is called the Kigali Amendment, and this will begin phasing hydrofluorocarbons out of use starting next year, starting in 2019, sorry, in in higher-income countries, and then lower middle- and lower-income countries have a few years before they have to start phasing it out. This is a mandatory treaty. It's not voluntary, uh, and it's a really important global action that a lot of people don't know about. We have had some success uh, globally um, 
at uh, at reducing at least or, or setting setting up a a globally binding treaty that will reduce this specific greenhouse gas. Great, great. You're optimistic then about the Kigali Agreement. Um, it, this is an area where I I'm, I just don't know that much. Um, the momentum seems to be positive. Uh, the fact that 170 countries came together and ratified this, the fact that there are commercially viable alternatives. I mean, if we, if, this is something we should be able to get right. Will we? I don't want to make any predictions, and I don't know, but I'm I'm very hopeful that we will. Yeah, yeah, great, great. Now, um, we talked a little bit about recycling and some of the issues around that. Can we talk a little bit, I guess, more about the end of life? And I know uh, one of the uh, solutions is around landfall methane recovery and issues like that. Can you talk about the potential there? Sure. So just by way of background, um, methane, 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 um, is this potent greenhouse gas, um, again, more powerful than carbon dioxide, and landfills are a, are a significant source of it. When you take organic waste, uh, yard debris, food, paper, things like that, and you put it into a landfill, um, the landfill, the inside of a landfill is, is an anaerobic environment. That is, it is starved of oxygen. It is much like uh, our, our guts, really. And when you have um, bacteria degrading these organic materials in an environment that is deprived of oxygen, it produces methane. Um, so the methane then um, percolates up through the surface of the landfill or it goes into surrounding soils and then percolates up and it gradually seeps and leaks out and uh, contributes to climate change. Methane is also explosive and some landfills have, just as a side note, have had, have had real problems with, um, there was a case uh, up here in the Pacific Northwest a few decades ago with a, with a woman um, uh, who, who lived in a house very close to a landfill, and the methane from the landfill had, had seeped into her crawl space and it had, had developed in concentrations such that when she lit her oven, her house blew up. Uh, so it's a pretty dangerous, yes. I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh, but it's a pretty yes. dangerous material. Yes. Um, so, um, so it's really important to, to capture and destroy this methane. And, and the good news is, is that methane is natural gas. And so increasingly, landfills are installing gas capture and control systems for the purpose of producing energy. And this is an energy that can be used for heat in an industrial process, or you can run it through a turbine and produce electricity, and you can, you can sell power into the grid and displace the combustion of fossil fuels elsewhere. That's a very good thing. But from a greenhouse gas perspective, the energy recovery piece is just frosting on the cake because when you're doing energy recovery, you're displacing carbon dioxide emissions someplace else. The most important thing to do is just to capture the gas and burn it. Whether you do energy recovery or not, just collecting the methane and destroying it, burning it in what's called a flare, converting it from methane to carbon dioxide um, reduces most of its global warming impacts. Uh, and so landfill methane controls with or without energy recovery are a really, really essential action. Great, 
Right, right, very interesting. Very interesting. Can you talk a little bit about composting and um, to what extent is this really similar to recycling or is it something slightly different? Sure. Um, composting and recycling are often sort of mashed together again, at least in the United States, um, in the public mind because they're offered by the same organization. It's just another way. It's a place where, you know, you put your 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 paper, glass, and, and plastic in this container here, and you put your yard debris and your food waste in that container there. Um, composting is a little bit different from recycling, um, particularly in the case of food. Uh, keeping the food out of the landfill is where a lot of the greenhouse gas benefit is because that food in a landfill will, again, decompose and produce methane. Um, composting has this other benefit in that finished compost, so, so you take yard debris, food waste, um, and you, you compost it. And in the composting process, um, which, by the way, can, can emit very small amounts of greenhouse gas emissions, um, in the composting process, you then produce this finished compost product. And the finished compost product has these complex, fairly stable uh, molecules, sometimes referred to as humic compounds, um, that are fairly stable, and they have a whole lot of carbon in them. And so when you take this finished compost and you apply it to soils, particularly if you apply it to agricultural soils, which due to decades or centuries of farming have been stripped of their naturally occurring carbon, you can actually return carbon back into the soil. And, and this has two benefits. The first benefit is you've essentially sequestered carbon. You've taken carbon that used to be up in the atmosphere and you've put it back into the ground. And nobody knows for certain really how long it stays there. But even if it stays there for a few decades, that's a good thing. But the other thing that is beneficial about restoring soil carbon is that soils that have higher carbon content have other benefits. They have better water retention capacity, so they require less irrigation. They can be more productive soils, allowing you to grow more crop with less chemical input or with less land, and that has a greenhouse gas benefit. So there are all these cascading benefits that come from um, restoring soil carbon, and that's one of the um, often overlooked benefits of composting. Great, great, great. A uh, lot, lot going on in our house. My children give me a hard time. <laughs> but not <laughs> <laughs> sure. For being, uh, uh, what was the word? A uh, slightly hit and miss uh, composter. Um, some, days I do, some days I do better than others. <laughs> well, you know, one, one thing about composting um, is that composting is beneficial, but it is not the best solution from a greenhouse gas perspective if we're talking about food waste. Um, let's draw a really important distinction between food waste and wasted food. Wasted food is food that, that could have been eaten and arguably should have been eaten but wasn't. Um, food waste includes wasted food as well as the bones, the pits, the peels, the skins, the holes, the shells, all the stuff that you never could have eaten in the first place. And in a perfect world, we would not be composting wasted food because that food has this massive carbon footprint in producing it. And composting really doesn't capture uh, 
much of the benefit. I mean, yeah, there's a benefit to it, but it's relatively small compared to the impact of producing the food. So not wasting edible food in the first place is a huge solution. I think it ranks number three in Drawdown. And I know you had a whole other podcast about that. I just want to emphasize that um, we, we really need to design our food waste systems so that we are going after food waste. But before that, we're optimizing um, this sort of goes back to the consumption piece and that we're not wasting edible food in the first place because the greenhouse gas benefits of that are far, far greater than composting. Yes, it's quite uh, dramatic, really, the impact, isn't it? The, the food, the, it's, it's something that you kind of, the back of your mind, but it's shocking to see just how, how significant it is. Yes, that's true. And, and there are some really interesting um, kind of synergies between prevention and composting. Um, there is some anecdotal evidence um, that when a community rolls out a food composting program and residents and businesses begin sorting their food, they no longer you know, put it in the garbage, they now have to sort it out, that the act of sorting out the food makes them more aware of the amount of food that's being wasted. And that could could, and in some cases does, result in a reduction in the amount of food being wasted in the first place. So that's a positive feedback loop. On the flip side, there is some um, evidence from some social science experiments that, that kind of thoughtless promotion of composting programs can actually undermine prevention and enable a higher degree of wasting of food because people believe that um, the food isn't being wasted, right? We're not wasting this food. We're composting it. And that's a good thing. And we're, we're going to feed our soils and, you know, restore soil carbon and keep it out of the landfill, et cetera, et cetera. And there's some, there's some pretty good evidence, um, at least in some communities, that um, overselling the benefits of food composting can actually undermine waste prevention programs. So this is kind of a new frontier in, in my work, and we're starting a research project uh, up right now to try to figure out how do we best frame and message this to the public so that we enable prevention while also encouraging composting. Great, great. Now we're talking about here about the individual level, and that's very interesting. Uh, in the sense that, you know, what is the best information that, that uh, consumers can get their hands on to understand um, the, the criteria in which they should be making choices about uh, buying things? You talked about the, 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 the waste side of it. That's one side, but we're buying things the whole time. Uh, you know, the carbon footprint. How useful is that? And, and what kind of information would you like to see going forward that companies need to provide and also how to, to help communicate to, to, to the public, uh, these questions. Right. That's really kind of tangled. So let's see if we can, um, I'm sorry, not the question, the topic is tangled. Um, <laughs> uh, so let's see here. I mean, right now, as of today, um, it's really difficult to provide consumers with the information that they would need to make a good choice to choose the lower carbon item. There are some general rules of thumb. Um, some of these general rules of thumb are supported by the scientific evidence and others are not. Um, one that is supported by the scientific evidence 
is that you should um, uh, waste less food. But if you're choosing between foods, plant-based foods and plant-based proteins um, typically have a lower carbon footprint than animal-based ones. Um, the same is true of clothing. Um, synthetics, ironically, I mean, people, you know, we love to hate plastics, but, um, but, but um, the polyesters, um, you know, often have a lower carbon footprint than um, thing than, than fabrics derived from farms or animals, cotton or wool. Um, uh, using, I mean, the most important piece of advice to the consumer is just to use use less. Um, and there's a lot of ways you can do this as a consumer. You can you can maintain products. You can repair products. You can keep them in circulation longer. You can substitute services services for products um, during the holidays. Uh, you can. You know, if you want to give gifts to people, you can give experiential gifts. So long as those experiential gifts don't involve airplane travel or long trips in a gas-guzzling car, um, it's going to have a lower carbon footprint than some some product, you know, that was manufactured and imported and, and shipped across the ocean and packaged, etc. Right, right. Very interesting. Now, what are the challenges in getting even rough estimates of the carbon footprints of different materials. And, and do you think this is important? And who would you say are the main players involved in this? Well, well, absolutely. And I think the, the onus really lies on the producers. So um, there are different accounting protocols, and the UK has been a leader uh, in this, um, for accounting for the carbon footprint of products. Um, there are there's a general method for doing it called life cycle assessment or LCA. And as is true of any, any accounting practice, there are some variations. There are different ways of doing it. And if you want to compare two products against each other for their carbon footprint, then the first thing you need to do is make sure that they were both evaluated using the same accounting framework. So there is a, um, system in place to try to support that called, uh, I'm going to throw out a couple of acronyms here, um, product category rules or PCRs and environmental product declarations or EPDs. So an environmental product declaration is a declaration of the carbon footprint. It could be also the water, energy, mineral, um, acidification, toxicity, other sorts of environmental impacts, but it typically at a minimum includes the carbon footprint of the product, and it's a label. It's kind of like the label uh, you may be familiar with on a box of cereal um, or a loaf of bread that tells you how many grams of fat and you know how much sodium and whatnot. Well, this tells you the carbon footprint of the product. And um, there are a few categories of products um, where where producers are now consistently producing these environmental product declarations. Building materials is where most of the action is, and that's really being driven by the, the, um, the, the lead green building certification system, at least in the United States. In Europe, um, there are some, Europe's further ahead with, with environmental product declarations on consumer products, and there have been a number of pilot projects done in the last couple of years. 
Um, I mentioned product category rules. The product category rule is the accounting rule for a class of products that tells you how to calculate the carbon footprint. And in theory, at least, if all producers follow the same product category rule, then they can produce environmental product declarations, the carbon footprints, that should be comparable. It turns out they're not always comparable, and so that's a bit of a problem. Um, I think we're, 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 we're a ways away yet from having reliable, standard um, environmental product declarations on consumer-facing products. But despite that, um, there are some really significant benefits to doing this, and there are some areas where we're seeing some solid momentum. The primary benefit to producing the environmental product declaration, it turns out, is that it drives changes in producer behavior. Even if the consumer never sees it, and let's be clear, I mean, at least in the United States, we've had we've had, you know, these nutrition labels on foods that have told people how much fat and sodium there is, you know, for decades. It, it, I don't know if it's made any difference whatsoever in terms of health outcomes. Hopefully it has. But just because there's a label doesn't mean people are going to read it. And even if they read it, it doesn't mean they're going to act on it from the consumer level. But producers will. If, if you're a producer and you're putting your product out in the market and you're going to put a label on it, you know, you're going to look at what the label says and you're going to see how it compares against your competition. And if you're not good, you're probably going to make an investment in making yourself better. And there's some evidence that suggests that that's where most of the benefit of these labeling schemes are, in, is that it shifts producer practices. Um, so, 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 so when does this make sense? Um, I mentioned a project we have with concrete right now where we're trying to create a market for low-carbon concrete. This is a great example um, because it's a, it's a very contained market. There's a finite number of producers. Um, and so this project we have involves helping producers to put these environmental product declarations on concrete mixes um, so that institutional buyers, because there's not very many of those either, um, can choose between high carbon mixes and low carbon mixes. So there's, a, there's an example where these really make sense. And another place where this makes sense is in doing um, what, what I would call sort of meta level reviews of product categories to generate, to try to generate um, advice that can help inform decisions. Let me give you an example of this. I'm going to come back to packaging because um, there's a lot of angst in the marketplace right now about the environmental impacts of packaging. Um, lots of lots of businesses, lots of consumers, and increasingly policymakers are relying on. Um, they don't know how to calculate the carbon footprint, right? They want low carbon materials. They want low impact materials, and so they 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 use what I call attributes, such as compostable, recyclable, recycled content, bio-based, as proxies. These attributes are simple to understand, they're easy to evaluate, and everyone uses them as a proxy for low impact. We assume if it's recyclable, it's low carbon. If it's recycled content, it's low carbon. If it's bio-based, it's low carbon. Um, so you can use these assessments, these life cycle assessments, to evaluate that assumption and, just, and find out, is that assumption valid? 
So let me use recycled content as an example. We just completed a study here in my office where we went back and we, we vacuumed up the last 17 years of the global literature, life cycle assessments of packaging materials. And we looked for assessments that compared packaging materials with higher versus lower levels of recycled content. And one of our findings was that if you've chosen a specific material for packaging, let's say you've decided you're going to package in glass or you're going to package in polyethylene or you're going to package in corrugated, whatever, um, increasing the recycled content of that material almost always reduces greenhouse gas emissions. Not always, but almost always. It's, it's, a, it's a reliable attribute. You should use it. But reviewing the last 17 years of literature, we found another important finding. And that is that if you're comparing different packaging formats that could provide the same function, let's say, for example, you could package wine in a glass bottle or you could package wine in an aseptic carton and the glass bottle might have 30, 40, 50% recycled content in it. The aseptic carton may have 0% recycled content in it. So you might say to yourself, oh, well, recycled content is good. We're going to choose the wine in the glass bottle or we're going to package our wine in glass. Uh-uh. It turns out that when you look at comparisons between equivalent but competing materials, Recycled content is a meaningless predictor of carbon footprint. There is zero correlation. Uh, in our studies, we found um, half of the time, the higher recycled content format had a lower carbon footprint, and half of the time it had a higher carbon footprint. So um, what these sorts of life cycle assessments can do is they can tell us, okay, industry and government and consumers, if you're going to use these simple rules of thumb, like recycled content, you need to use them carefully. They are not universal bromides. They are not universal solutions. Recycled content is a helpful attribute to use in one situation. Once you've chosen the material you're going to use and you're comparing identical materials, and it's not helpful to use in a different situation, for example, when you're comparing different materials against each other. So that's the real value in these sorts of studies is they can help guide these sort of simpler um, yardsticks and, and, and guidances that everyone seems to follow. It's very nuanced. I feel like we're peeling off layers here and I'm sure we could peel off a few more layers and, and uh, get important distinctions. Um, and it's a, a really important area and fascinating. And uh, it's been really great to have an opportunity to talk to you today, David. Is there anything else that you think that, that you, you, you'd like to highlight? Um, you know, we didn't talk all that much about reducing consumption, um, which is a hugely important solution. It, it did not get much evaluation within the first version of Drawdown, in part because it's really difficult to model. Um, but when you look at our sort of global trajectory um, and, and the fact that we are not decoupling um, uh, growth and consumption from greenhouse gas emissions in the absolute sense, um, it's going to be increasingly important that we find ways to live well um, with less overall throughput. Um, and that's sort of the next generation of challenges um, that uh, we're going to need more, more attention on in the future. 
Oh, absolutely. And I've had discussions with some uh, thinkers in the whole area of degrowth, which is another area where there's a lot of thinking going on at the moment, various ways of post-growth, degrowth. But this, yes, uh, trying to uh, take out growth as this goal that all economies have and all economists and all policymakers and, and, and to think about that, the, the implications of economic growth. Because every 20 or 30 years, the, the, with a 2 to 3% growth level, you're talking about doubling the level of output. And if you're talking about the kinds of material issues that you've highlighted, you just think about what that would mean to the planet. Right. Well, you know, you t- you, growth there uh, is, is typically measured. It's, it's typically measured in terms of GDP, and all GDP is just a measure of the amount of money s- slushing around in the economy, whether it's for good or 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 money that's being spent on things we really don't want to be doing, like cleaning up pollution. I mean, of course, we want to clean up pollution, but ideally, there would be less to clean up in the first place. There are certainly some things I think we could all agree that we need to grow. We need to grow a community. Um, Growth and resilience is a good thing. Growth in beauty is a good thing. We just don't need growth that is fundamentally non-economic. Growth that harms, economic growth that harms people on the planet. Uh, Growth that drives our, our climate off the cliff. So we need a more nuanced approach. Um, what exactly are we trying to grow and why is a very important question that needs to be asked and then answered. Brilliant. Thank you so much, David. That's been fascinating to talk to you today. And I wish you the very best of success with your ongoing work. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Drawdown Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. We would really appreciate if you could help spread the word by leaving a rating on iTunes, sharing with your friends and on social media. You can find out more about Project Drawdown at drawdown.org. If you'd like to hear leading sustainability and environmental thinkers share their views on the biggest sustainability challenges we are facing, you can listen to the Sustainability Agenda podcast at the sustainabilityagenda.com, iTunes, as well as other leading podcast platforms including Stitcher, Podbean and Google Play.